0: a guide and during the covid-19 crisis we are many of us are turning to history to help us understand what's going on now and to be a guide to the future. So joining me now is Dr. Ann Keating, professor of history from North Central College, and Jean Schultz Angel. She is the director of learning experience from Napier Settlement. Welcome. Thanks for joining me. Oh, thank you. Thanks so for I- having I'd like to jump in right with the, and, and go back about a hundred years. And it's a little eerie to me that's been about a hundred years and here we are. That's 1918 flu pandemic um, that is is kind of being compared to and talked about when it comes to COVID-19. So, Anne, can you kind of give us a little bit of a, a primer of 1918 and the flu? Yeah, yeah. Um... Liz, and you know,
1: uh, you ask a historian a question like, start at 1918, and I immediately say, oh, I can't do that. So I've got just a couple of things that it just seems to me we need to know before we get to 1918. Sure, absolutely. So, So one of them is that epidemics, pandemics, health crises have really been handled locally. You know, I think we really want to have the sense of these are things that are, well, they strike the world. Mm-hmm. If you're talking about a pandemic, they really are something that local communities have to confront, um, and we'll talk more about how that unfolds. But that just seems to me, and it's a little different today, and I think that's the really interesting thing about this, but it's that's the piece. But the other thing is that up until 1918, people lived with regular regular epidemics and pandemics that they were a regular part of life and if you look at chicago in the 19th century it's just one pandemic and epidemic after another i mean chicago starts really with the black hawk war in 1832 and you get that first cholera epidemic right the pandemic so you've got cholera coming you've got smallpox you've got typhoid you've got diphtheria and they're killing right honestly, it's killing thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of people. And so you get to the 20th century, and I think the interesting thing for me about influenza and the other pandemics and epidemics that we see in the 20th century is that they really start to, um, they start to become more exceptional um, rather than routine, right? So a big part of the 19th century is you just live, you've got, you're gonna live with this kind of disease and a really high level high death rates. I mean I just um I yeah that's a big piece of it. so 1918 is I mean it blows my mind when i think about how many people we're talking about right i mean I like it's that. you know the number of people that were that that were infected they're talking about 500 million potentially around the world in a much smaller world mm-hmm. and um you know, twenty to fifty million people who were, who died. I mean, those those numbers are so much bigger than anything that we're looking at right now, and you know, I, I, being in at the beginning potentially of an epidemic, but it, that just seems to me to be a big piece of it. So those would be would be two things that that I would really want to have in mind as as we start, right? So you know, epidemic, yeah, yeah, yeah. So not. Yeah, 1918 is a war, right? So we're in the middle, we're coming to the, the close of World War One. The the U.S. has entered the war late, so soldiers are training um, in 1918, and this outbreak begins. I mean, there's questions about where. There's clearly places around the world where they've got um, uh, where you've got this um, influenza. And certainly in the US, the one close place is is Kansas, right? I mean, there's an argument. This is called the Spanish flu because Spain was the one country that would write about, the Spanish newspapers would write fairly honestly about what was going on during this time of war because the countries, the combatants didn't want to write about the, the how the disease was affecting their troops. So, um, yeah it's a it's a mid there's a midwest component to the story as it starts um you know um some folks that you read would suggest it should be the kansas flu right um as we think about it
0: so when we think genie when we think think about um our COVID-19 right now, there's lots of thoughts that, especially in Illinois, that Chicago's harder hit, that Naperville here is less hit, and, and thus we're sitting in a stay-at-home order. There's lots of people who are saying, well, you know, we should be treated differently because we don't have it as severely. Was that true for 1918? Did we see that type of, was Naperville as impacted by the flu or were they less impacted because they were smaller and they were a agrarian community?
2: Well, as much as you might want to think that, the evidence doesn't really support that in terms of, you know, local levels and the 1918 flu pandemic. Um, 23,000, over 23,000 Illinois residents died of the influenza between 1918 and 1919. And it definitely hit Naperville. Now, what you'll see in the newspaper reporting out of Chicago that they're doing more reporting on it and they're talking about it and it's more of a um, a conversation, we have two items in the collection at Neighbor Settlement, in Neighborville Heritage Society's collection, that talk specifically about this and that are directly uh, evidence of the 1918 um, flu, and that is Merle Clark's journal of uh, an 11-year-old girl who her, she and her dad and her family went through the flu, and she wrote little snippets here and there about her time. And then we also have a Naperville Clarion article from November 1st, I'm so sorry, for, from um, a week after um, Merle Clark's journal, so right at the same time period. And they're really not painting the, the, um, the same picture. <laughs> Um, Between the personal um, 11-year-old response to the flu and um, what's going on in the newspaper where, you know, they're saying things like, nothing new, simply the old grip or la grip that was the epidemic in 1889 and 1890. Um, It came by uh, from Russia to Spain to France and then go to bed and stay quiet, take a laxative, (laughs) eat plenty of nourishing food, keep up your strength. Um, and nature is the only cure. So they're saying nothing to worry about, we'll get through this in terms of the local response, the public response through the paper. Um, and there's lots of advice that follows. But uh, going back to what Ann mentioned, in terms of the evidence that you see, these types of epidemics or pandemics, you can see that evidence locally by walking through a cemetery. Mm-hmm. When you'll see from time to time, Little rows of small tombstones, or something, where the children didn't survive—you know, diphtheria, or there was a cholera epidemic. There's there's several instances in, in uh, local history where you can actually see this without having to ask too many questions. Oh, that's when the community went through this, and we lost yeah. this many people. So you know, you really can can see that. So I wouldn't um, I wouldn't say that it was less hit. Than Chicago, um, I would say that it's it's a proportional response to the population, of course. Yeah, and and I mean the 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 response in 1918, um,
1: the the federal government turned it over to the Red Cross. The Red Cross was going to handle the national response, so it was done privately. It was not even done by the federal government, and then it's lo- the state and then local boards of health. So it's really. Local boards of health that were making decisions about whether things were going to get closed down or not. And mm-hmm. so, um, across the Chicago area, most communities stayed open. That is, the schools stayed open, um, lots of other things closed. So, I can, um, examples in Chicago, the schools uh, stayed open movie houses closed, saloons closed, uh, pool ha- halls. Um, you know, so um, live theater was shut down, music venues were shut down. Um, but it's, it's that kind of thing. But businesses were not, people went to work. Um, people got on the, um, the, the streetcars and the elevated lines in Chicago in uh, 1918 and 1919 and went to school and went to work. Um, so that's really different from this stay-at-home order, and I think the big thing, and it comes back again to think about this, is people had no going back to what people wanted, how what their response was going to be. People didn't know. People had no expectation that there was going to be a cure. So um, there wasn't a sense that if I just stay home, <laughs> that this will will that there will things will get better. It really was you're going to have to endure this uh this disease as it ravages your community and you can do some things and there are things that they did they will close down things that are going to bring a lot of people together um but they there wasn't a it's a very different sense in that way i mean the college so it's interesting to me because i went and took a look at the north central at the college paper too and the college doesn't close down the number of students who come to school is is seems to be down although Going back to Jean's point, not really the paper's not making that um, crystal clear, mm-hmm. but people are getting sick. So people have um, uh, they're described as the influenza, or uh, but often it's it's pneumonia, right, or the flu. And uh, in one case, a, mo- a mother comes to take care of her student once she gets sick, and other students are recovering. So it's very much. Um, uh, something that's taken as a part of being being in school during 1918 and into 1919 and um, was it was really just an accepted part of I don't know the risk that they were all taking. Now the big difference of course, another big difference is there's a war, right? So the big thing that the college is really wrestling with is World War One. All the young men that have have volunteered to go off and fight in in the war, and then also the risk of influenza to those 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 uh, those young men and the people around them so at north central they 're running a um, a training center so they 've got hundreds of young men who 've come to the college to train for the army and um that 's a hotbed so it 's really these army spots are the hotbeds in the um in, it from from my perspective in Naperville, but across the Chicago region right so it's there there um, they're the places and so on the college campus they set up a hospital in um, the um, the uh, the old Science Center so um, you know in one of the old buildings on campus in one of the rooms was set up this hospital and they described that that process and from what I can see again to Jean's point the the number of people that have died here is not all that high. But again, the number of kids, the young men who die here are are, are in large measure tied to the their soldiers. Mm-hmm. You know, they die right. one place or the other. And, you know, they're writing, the, the soldiers, the young men who had been at North Central the year before and are writing, you know, there's two guys from Texas who write into the newspaper and they're talking about how, you know, one of them's on a, in a camp that there's 2,500 soldiers And he's estimating 2,000 of the soldiers have the influenza. And he's Mm -hmm. like, there's no one to take care of us. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's that dire. And so that's the kind of connection that people have is to be
2: connected with these soldiers and there's local soldiers that are casualties yeah. of the flu. Um, Edward Carol Baptist and Arnold Paul Hildebrand, both World War I servicemen from Naperville, died three days apart of influenza at the Great Lakes Naval Hospital. Right. So you know there are these casualties in a direct result of these people. Bunking together, you know these barracks where it can so easily spread, and uh, and um, Goldspun Hall over at uh, North Central right. College um, was turned into the barracks and then the um, turned converted to a hospital when it became a problem. So there is local reaction um, because of
0: the 1918 uh, pandemic
2: that's happening. So
0: I find it interesting that the things that help people endure through that time are the things that we're doing right now. Social distancing, face coverings, you know, they weren't the N95 masks, they were a handkerchief at that, but but those things still work. But I think the most interesting thing is to your point, Anne, is the expectation. We don't expect to have this happen now in the, we're in 2020. We expect, you know, modern medicine to in, intervene where that was, not the expectation.
1: No, I I, I think that we really, the 20th century has has been a a century, the 20th century was a century of learning to live without epidemics and pandemics Mm -hmm. and putting them, getting them under control, using antibiotics and other treatments to to really clamp down on the number of people. And, And it's absolutely the case, right? I mean, when you think about from 1918 forward, we just don't have the numbers in um, in the United States, and certainly here in um, in the in the
2: Chicago area and neighbors, and sanitation and, helps with that as well. Oh, you Sanitations, you know, sanitation measures that have just went from literally, you know, feces in the street. To actual uh, clean running running water, regular bathing opportunities for um, dense populations. You know, there's all types of sanitations advancing, whereas really mitigating those chances right. of a widespread um, pandemic.
0: Right. Absolutely. The idea that we have indoor plumbing and that <laughs> right, right. It it is. You know, even from, from you know backyard to latrine to indoor plumbing right. was a big step, um, which we just all absolutely take for granted um, right. in this time period. So we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back and we're going to talk about a couple other um, diseases not nece- um, that have some striking comparisons to what we're going through now. Stay tuned.
3: In Naperville, we know that community counts. In fact, it's in our name. As Naperville Community Television, we have the privilege of showcasing what makes this award-winning city a wonderful place to raise a family, to make a living, and to enjoy life's journey. That's why it's our mission to capture on camera those special moments that connect us. Those stories that impact our lives. Stories you won't see anywhere else. So watch Naperville Community Television on air, online, and on social media.
0: So we're back. I have Dr. Ann Keating from North Central College and Jean Schultz-Angel from Neighbor Settlement joining, and we are talking about history and what we uh, can learn from the past that can help us with the future here now in this age of COVID-19. So one of the things that comes to mind when we're thinking about flus and other diseases is polio. I remember my grandmother talking about polio and how they worried about every summer polio coming along. Um, so how does a disease like polio differ from the flu or what we have now, COVID-19? Or is it just another another epidemic or pandemic that we just call polio instead? Yeah, well, It has
1: real similarities um, in, in terms of um, certainly the idea that it's affecting young people more than, um, than, um, than an older population. And I mean, polio is, again, it's a 20th century it's something that's going to really affect us in the 20th century. Now we've got evidence that there is polio that goes back, you know, we've got ancient Egypt and polio, but the, but the idea of polio is something that's hitting us epidemics within communities across the United States, really after the 19, 19, 1918 influenza. So it's in the 1920s that you start to see polio outbreaks in the summers. And it's really something that's gonna pick up in the 1930s and 1940s and into the 1950s. So it's 1954, 55 when you finally, uh, you get a vaccine. And this is this, so this story is really different from right. uh, of influenza where you just see the, the, um, the, um, Medical. It, the herd immunity. So we hit a point where, we are, uh, where, where it just kind of dies out, the influenza does. In the case of polio, it's going to come back for years and years and years. I mean, it affects everyone from FDR, right, mm-hmm. um, to um, lots of other other figures. And it's something then that was very much feared. And it's going to affect, uh, in the Chicago area, we definitely see it in the 1930s and 1940s. And in the summertime, it was something that meant that things just shut down right parks swimming pools swimming pools was the thing that i really um and and beaches were things that when i looked at that disease it was like oh my goodness that um just people did not go did not use outdoor swimming did not do swimming during those these years because of the the difficulty with well the fear of of getting polio and polio is such a um um, it's such a dire disease for for young people, with the um, the um, that that comes on overnight, right? It's really this paralysis that really you just wake up with it, and so it's a very quick on, onset and that that really um, this these flu-like symptoms. So it's it's in that sense, it's very much um, um, it's different in that it's decades, right? It's uh, decades. It affects children. Um, and there is no cure. So the cure is the, the, the treatment is um, treating the 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 the, um, the condition as it evolves and then um, to try and avoid catching it. You know, I mean people were, were very fearful of being out in public with other with particularly for children, with being with other children. Schools will shut down periodically, right? I know in Chicago in the 1930s, there are stretches where the public schools shut down when things are particularly bad, but only for you know three or four weeks and then they'll go back to school.
0: Well, I think it's interesting too that with polio, again, um, there's there's three strands of it, and about and 90% of people could have polio and, and recover from it without the the paralysis or even knowing they're right. having it. Much a little bit with what we're seeing now with COVID-19, that 80% 85% of of people exposed to that are have mild symptoms or don't even know they're asymptomatic. Um, it's just it's the you know 10-15% and that are really you know very much impacted. Jean, what was um, Naperville's response with polio?
2: So it's interesting. In 1952, DuPage County sort of hit a peak with its worst polio outbreak, with 130 cases and 14 deaths. So, um, and in 1952, of course, the population of DuPage County isn't what it is today. Right. <laughs> um, but in, in uh, Naperville, had an interesting uh, moment in history in April 1954. The Illinois Health Department announced that DuPage, Peoria, and Winnebago counties had been selected um, in a field study for the soft polio vaccine and the project was designed um, so that half of the students would get the vaccine and half would get a placebo shot. Um, 9,000 first, second, and third graders in DuPage were selected to take part in the trial and a woman going by the name of Mary Um, on a website for polio pioneers, um, describes standing in a line at the school gym in Naperville waiting for the injection. And she describes most of the parents and children as happy to take part because polio was so incredibly terrifying. And then the other local response I think you're seeing with tuberculosis and polio is you're seeing part of these local um, civic organizations activating around these things to help eradication. Um, Polio, specifically, you have the Rotary Club. Since 1985, Rotarians have been mobilizers around polio eradication. Um, And and then with tuberculosis, you have the Naperville Women's Club, that are raising money towards um, stopping tuberculosis or mitigating the the problem that it is. So you've got some of the civic organizations sort of starting to coalesce around these um, problems, these these public health problems.
0: Well, I think it's interesting too because you see science step up here, and then vaccines are beginning, you know, with Salk and then um, Sabin, who are are trying to actively figure out how how this virus works. How do they, do they use a live, you know, sample or do they use a dead sample? And, you know, and that was, that goes back to smallpox too, where they, you know, used to, you know, you know, do it a little bit more crudely on, on how that you would get immune to smallpox and hope you didn't kill the person by trying to get this antibody or herd immunity going quicker. So I think that's interesting. Where with tuberculosis, we don't, we don't have a vaccine today. We have a good medical cure for it, and we have a great we have great testing for it. But we don't have um, a vaccine, which I think is which is interesting. Um, and we just it's part of our life. It's just part of life. Again, going back to we're not used to having this medical nightmare, if you would, um, looming all the time, which is what makes this so different. In, in Naperville, had you said the women's club raising money for tuberculosis, it is also the home of a sanitarium, which now, which was yes. private, which is Edward, which becomes transforms, you know, and is now, you know, EE Health and you know Edward Elmhurst Health Systems. But so great, great roots there. Absolutely.
2: Right. Um, Eudora Gaylord Spaulding actually purchased 40 acres uh, um, of her farmland, and then she opened the tuberculosis sanita- sanatorium, Edward Sanatorium. And it had 15 beds, that was 1907. And so by the 1950s, it had converted to a hospital, but there, there's definitely a basis there. There was a need and there was something where she wanted to offer those open air treatments that were so popular for right. tuberculosis. Right, yeah. Right, I mean, and with tuberculosis, they, I mean, there's an
1: understanding of what's causing this disease, but they couldn't find a cure. To right. your point. They, that that's something that's not achieved, right? So you may understand the disease, but you may not be able to cure it. So with the, with the Edwards Sanitarium and um, is private, but what you see across the Chicago area then and across the country is also Department of Public Health officials founding the sanitarium Across the the country, but they're lo- again that local response. It's it's private, and it's also then the public public officials who are responding in that way. And the idea that all you could do for those TB patients was open air was to get them away from so so they weren't going to infect people. So really, the idea here of quarantining. So it was it was a disease where you could actually quarantine the. Uh, patients over the course of the 20th century. In the 19th century, far more difficult, far more cases. But here, you're starting to control the disease by quarantining. So into the 1940s, if you got TB, the the treatment was, yeah, open air, um, but you were also going to be quarantined. You needed to be separated out from the population at large. And we we did that, right, whether it's in Naperville or whether it's in in public – uh, the Metropolitan Tuberculosis Sanitarium, which was an enormous uh, place on the northwest side um, that uh, housed um, really i think thousands of TB uh, patients over at many points over the course of the it opens right before uh, world, with right with World War one and it again will run into the 1970s before it closes. Um, I mean, the thing about TB that's also interesting to me when I think about this is uh, it's a disease that's going to be more dire for people who don't have access to health (laughs) care, for people who live in don't have uh, access to um, better uh, living conditions, so healthcare and living conditions and food. So, it's it TB was a 20th century disease that you could see race and class played a big piece of who got TB over the as, as it moved on over the course of the 20th century. So, um, it's another piece that we can see connections with COVID in terms of thinking about the ways in which. It, it disproportionately affects, um, an epidemic like this disproportionately affects parts of the population.
0: What's well, interesting with TB and the sanitation, sanitariums, um, because they were looking for the disease to go dormant. So you could go in there, it could go dormant, you would have less symptoms you would reach and then go back and forth for several right. years because they were trying to get it to go right. dormant. Right. Um, an interesting approach um, for for that as well. And you know, both of those diseases, you know, one gets a vaccine, one gets better treatment, which all goes to, again, medical science helping us um, along the way. And, and it takes, it takes time and it gets, it gets going. But the other thing is moving us a little bit down the timeline Yeah, in mid the mid eighties, um, AIDS comes along um, that, you know, something that hits a very um, Unique population, but we have big fear. I mean, I I think that is one of the times where I really remember the population being very fearful because we had no idea. There was misconception about how it was spread, and people were, you know, warned not to touch or talk to people who might have AIDS. And then, and then, miraculously, not miraculously, but you know, quickly from the mid '80s to now, where it's you know, HIV positive and AIDS, very, very manageable. We don't have a cure for it, but boy, did we rally to get it tapped down and and going. So what are, how does that compare across, you know, from flu to polio, tuberculosis to COVID-19? Where does that, was that a a mid-century, you know, um, pandemic or epidemic?
1: It's, without any question, it's the last epidemic of, uh, that's going to hit uh, the, the Chicago area and the United States in the 20th century and probably the Western world. So it's a big, it's a big story. Um, and to your point, Liz, that in the 1980s, it's a story of first identifying it as a disease. So it's not unlike what we're seeing in the last few months then figuring out what the symptoms are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the things that are um, that compose this disease um, and so it's in that way, very reminiscent of the experience that we're having now. So it's like, what is, is AIDS, right? What will, what, what are the, the symptoms? What is, and then how, how does this, how is this disease um, transmitted? These are all pieces of, of learning about a disease that we can go back and think about, right? Because it's something that some of us, at any rate, can remember that that was a part of um, of how to deal with a new disease, with something that's just coming across, um, and we're experiencing. But in again, in Chicago, thousands of people are going to die right of this disease. I think um, 1997, um, 9,000 Chicagoans d- died of AIDS. So it's a significant number of people that are losing their lives over the course of beginning in the 1980s and into the 1990s until treatments evolve that are going to be able to make it a, um, not a deadly, not so much, a, not as much of a deadly disease as much as one that can be, um, that can be managed. Um, again, this idea of then identifying who's, um, who's, who's going to be at risk, who's not at risk and I, I see real parallels with the world that we're living in today is who's likely to get this, who's not likely to get a disease and not having answers to those questions I think brings up a lot of fear on the part of individuals and how they manage our initial responses to diseases. And in this case, um, with AIDS um, that it is, um, it's seemed to be something that's very much a part of um, the gay community is going to be very uh, is a very powerful part of this story, and um, i I mean we're still seeing how this will play out um, in comparison
2: with with COVID,
1: but it was yeah that's that's a big piece of that,
2: and and in terms of Naperville's uh, um, uh, perspective. I'll use myself as a primary source having grown up in Naperville <laughs> during this time. <laughs> and uh right. Um and I can tell you the um as everybody knows the misinformation that was going on in the 80s or just the misunderstandings of what it was and and how it it um it traveled, how it spread, um what was going on with that and then sort of vilifying communities in Mm -hmm. which were hardest hit was a big was a big problem um and I I can remember going through high school and this was a really big scare it was it was absolutely frightening you had to be thinking about this all the time um and it was it had permeated through popular culture more so than scientific or, or health circles it went through popular culture quicker um and so it those myths were able to explode on a local level that uh, that thank goodness have been um you know the the education around AIDS is um finally leveled out, and people understood. Uh, more about it and m- more of where, you know, how it was spread um, and and could you live with it? Was it a death sentence? Things like that. So there was a lot of early fears that were thankfully, you know, uh, mitigated um, later. And then you had people like um, uh, President George um, W. Bush, who who helped tremendously in Africa, in um, the AIDS issues, you had, um, you know, you had icons from the '80s and '90s like Bono being the spokesperson for this. So it really turned around and it became something um, where you felt more calm about it. We had it under control and and things like that. But but yeah, I I, um, I specifically remember um, the the terror around it.
0: Well, I think it's interesting that you mentioned pop culture um, because you know our. Tom Hanks is our is our lead actor in this in this story because he is you know he goes first with being the first celebrity really diagnosed and coming forth with COVID-19 and bringing a face to it um but we've had not a lot of popular culture with this which is interesting as much as as with the, you know, the AIDS scare there. Um, But the population is interesting where it was the gay population that was most vulnerable. And now our our vulnerable population is our, is our elderly and those who are, you know, immune compromised, which is a term that, you know, I think is more current than it was, you know, even 20 years ago. So it's an interesting, an interesting, um, comparison between the two and something that we can all relate to. I lived through that time period as well. So I I remember um, being a young reporter and having to do a story with a person who had AIDS, a young man. And, you know, my mother was terrified for me. And I was, you know, in my mid twenties, I thought I was just absolutely bulletproof. So I was not worried at all. How could I not do this? You know, and, and, and everything worked out as best it could. I did the interview and, and it was a lovely story, but that was the type of fear. And, you know, but my mom had lived through polio. My mom had lived through tuberculosis. So she understood way better than I did, you know, what this could mean. And and, and again, misinformation that a handshake or a hug would transmit this. So it, an interesting time period. I I think this is a reminder that we're living through history now. And I wonder how five, 10 years ago, from now, how we'll look back at this. So hopefully we can keep a journal and give it over to Naperville Settlement there, Jean. That's right,
2: absolutely. That's right. <laughs> Part of our Naperville 2020 pandemic um, initiative is encouraging people to keep journals and when they're comfortable to donate
0: those to Naperville Settlement. You know, it's interesting because I love, I love a good journal read. I love a good letter read um, from the past. And so, but people think, oh, nobody's ever gonna care. It's gonna be too personal or too mundane. We all care. We all care. That's right. right. Absolutely.
2: It's much easier for historians in the future Mm -hmm. to really interpret what we were going through and learn from that if we have those primary sources, uh, whether or not you think they're mundane or not. You know, that's that day-to-day
0: stuff is the meat and potatoes for historians. Absolutely. So we're going to um, take another break and then we're going to come back and and talk about the economics and and government impact of all of of all of this, so stay tuned.
3: While stores, parking lots, streets, and playgrounds sit empty as we shelter inside, it's important that we keep our hearts full. Full of love and compassion for one another and full of hope for brighter days to come. If this past week has demonstrated anything, it's that Naperville is a strong, resilient community that we'll only be stronger together. NCTV 17 is proud to share your positive stories. Stories of neighbors helping and protecting the most vulnerable. Stories of everyday citizens giving back to our medical workers and first responders. Stories of homeowners doing whatever they can to spread messages of kindness and hope. So let's continue to come together, even when standing apart. For what awaits us is far greater than what faces us.
0: Well, welcome back. Um, and let's jump into thinking about right now, we have COVID-19, which is this, a big pandemic that we're worried about. And it's caused a large economic crisis that we haven't seen since the 1930 depression. So let's talk a little bit about what was going back at that time period and what role did government play?
1: Yeah,
0: uh, um, I mean, I think you're, to your to the first thing you said that
1: we wanna really keep in mind, and that is that this is what we're looking at today are, is two things, right? So on the one hand, it's the, a response to a, um, a pandemic um, and trying to combat a, a pandemic. And on the other, it's also an economic crisis. They are not unrelated, but they are, they're, they're separated. And so if we're gonna compare this to the Great Depression, and I think it's really worth thinking about that, we wanna keep in mind that the Great Depression did not have a pandemic <laughs> going on at the same time. I mean, certainly there, there are health issues but at this it is not of the same magnitude of what we're looking at here so there is we're going to make some comparisons but we also want to keep in mind that it's really different and so how this is going to play out will will um, we're not sure right and and right. one of the big ways that i i think about that is just the the way that unemployment ramped up. So you see the the, mm-hmm. the crash in 1929, unemployment's going to build, right? It's not something that you go from, you know, the lowest unemployment rates in a decade to, um, you know, 25 plus million Americans out of work in a matter of weeks. Um, in the case of the Great Depression, that ramp up, right, and of, of hitting, um, millions of people unemployed is really going to take years. Right. So I, I think that to my mind, and so the response that you're going to get to the Great Depression from the federal government, and again, it's interesting, right? We've been talking here about the response to pandemics and epidemics. And what we've really seen is, um, in large measure, that's been, a it's, the state and then local communities and then private efforts have really been at the forefront of dealing with, with, um, with these health crises. But in the case of the Great Depression, for the first time, we're really seeing the intervention of the federal government in large measure because, and it takes a while, right? So in the Great Depression, in after 1929, in 1930 and 31, it's local communities, local governments that are responding to people being unemployed, people not being able to pay their taxes, taxes then not being collected. So you can't pay your police, fire and teachers, which is a huge problem in um, in Chicago in the 1920s and across this region. And then um, the state government steps in and will try and help out as best they can. And state governments get completely tapped out by you know 1932 and unemployment is still rising but it's still and it's still not hitting the levels that we've got arguably right now right wow. Wow. and so you get to to FDR to Franklin Delano Roosevelt's election in 1932 that when that takes place you've already had years of the depression you've had years of need from a local level up to a state level that, that private efforts aren't gonna work, local efforts aren't gonna work, state le- level efforts aren't gonna work or haven't worked enough. And so there's a real um, understanding that the federal government's gonna to have to do this. So it's not a, you know, suddenly FDR comes in. I mean, Hoover knew this too, right? I mean, Hoover, the President, uh, president uh, Herbert Hoover before, um, before uh, 1932 was well aware of, of these issues and was trying to address them, not as dramatically as FDR is going to try and, and address them. And um, FDR is going to work, you know, in in a number of ways, right? you working behind um, with industries and with trying to organize industries and banking and finance to get the infrastructure going. And on this at the same time, He's working to help local and state governments stay afloat. So we got, you know, the business end, the, the, the government end. And then I'd also say another big piece that I see when I think about the the the, the New Deal is putting people to work immediately. Mm-hmm. So it's to find projects and to identify projects of things that need to be done, that ought to be done, that 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 there's a will that, that the communities have wanted to do for years and haven't been able to find the money to do, and to put people to work. So you get the WPA and the PWA, the Civilian Conservation Corps, the kinds of things that are kind of front-facing for um, for those you know for for the everyday citizen, right? Not probably as much interested in how the banking industry is reformed or how businesses, uh, uh, sectors of, the, of industry are helped. But they certainly see that their state and local governments are going to get, are getting aid. And they also see that there are jobs that are being um, produced by programs like the WPA and the PWA.
0: Jean, how does Naperville respond? I think we're all thinking it's a farming community, so it's less impacted. Right, yeah, and you do have some of that. You know, your your largest
2: manufacturer is Crayler Manufacturing. It had 700 employees. And for the first part of the depression, they actually do the work sharing rather than trying to firing people and things like mm-hmm. that but you know there there's a lot of problems trying to keep jobs because the demand for furniture has plummeted you know their production um their business dropped by 50% so hmm. you know in response to that they they do this work sharing and other other um industries also do the work sharing the agrarian community in naperville is you know you've got 1200 dairies averaging 111 mm-hmm. acres um, and their family farms you know so so they're weathering through one one historian Doris wood describes the de- the depression as sneaking up on Naperville as they were spared from many of the early economic and cultural shocks of the depression um, and as far as keeping pe- keeping people employed um, Centennial Beach in 19- it you know that the, the centennial Beach and the celebration of the 100 years of Naperville's history right. um, was a big thing was a big um, proponent of keeping people employed, and you know the project um, uh, challenged the community. They they had uh, fundraisers and and things like that. And so there's there's a lot of this kind of coming together in Naperville. Um, the city of Naperville also decided to construct a new bridge at Main Street during that time, and it employed a hundred men cost 22,000, but you had to live in Naperville to get the job. So they're mm. really, this, this, this sense of local helping their own is, is definitely happening um, throughout, throughout Naperville. And so, but, you know, Centennial Beach became the second biggest revenue generator for mm. the city during that by 1936. So um, it's, it's interesting um, that a, a lot of what's happening across the country is happening on a local scale in Naperville. Yeah, um, but but uh, at the same time, the funding for that's coming from the federal government.
1: Yes. So the money yes. to build the bridges, the money to do that work, is um, it's been coming through the local community and then providing those jobs. Um, it's, you're, you,
2: but that community response is vital. Yes, well, and, and th- you know they—they they did it. Did sort of sneak up, so so to speak. But by nineteen thirty-two, they had the Naperville Community Kitchen opened, feeding right. forty-three thousand people a year. You right. know, um, and so there, there's real desperation right. happening there. Um, you know, it's just not an immediate effect, like Anne was saying. It was something that built.
0: Well, I think it's interesting as a community. Um, impact and a community response because you see a community response right now in Naperville for our restaurants, for our downtown. I mean, immediately, you know, when the when this hit and the restaurants had to close, there was a huge push to to do takeout to to support them to keep you know the community moving forward in this time period. So, it, it doesn't seem like it seems like a very similar comparison back in the 1930s when faced with with this type of uh, crisis. Um, when we think about the COVID 19 economic crisis, um, lots of people make a comparison to 20, 2008, a little closer to us uh, in the Great Recession, and, and how that, what do you guys think? Does, is that an equal comparison or is that a, something, a blip? What do you think? I
1: think the unemployment in 08, 09 pales in comparison. Okay. I mean, the, the, the real comparison is with the depression, right? I mean, the unemployment estimates for, at the height of the New Deal are about 25% people unemployed and we're beyond that already. Um, I don't think there's any, it comes even close, 8 09 doesn't come even close um, in terms of those numbers. So I, um, it's hard for me to take really get my arms around what the economic what this economic crisis is um i mean a lot of um 0809 is tied to um housing okay. and Hi. and what's interesting here is i mean so a, an interesting question that i just i mean the, i have no answer for but it's an interesting thing is thinking about um what's happened what how this plays out in housing. This did not start in housing. This did not start as a housing bubble. Bubble. This starts with a pandemic, so it has a very different story. And unemployment. To your point, that that, that so much closed down so rapidly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really unemployment more than your um, you, your your uh, your house. Um, that you can't meet your mortgage. It's a diff- I mean that's that's a second level. Losing your job. I mean it's a different story altogether. Um
0: right in many and ways. One of the things I've heard um economists say that in 20, 2008, there was criticism that the government didn't respond fast enough. And then I think now in this particular um, situation you're seeing government move much faster. You know, what we're the jury is still out if it's moving enough and, you know, will it be enough? Um, but I think it's very interesting because if you, back to 1930 where government was very hesitant, you know, or was, it was a new idea for government to come in and help, even with the trickle down effect, where now we're anticipating some help.
1: Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I find really interesting, too, to be thinking about is um, that there were a lot of New Deal programs that didn't work. <laughs> right. You know, there were a lot of things that were ruled unconstitutional. That were found to be not, not, not doing, not getting people back to work. And so, one of the things when I think about oh uh, seven, oh eight, oh nine, and then today is to not feel wedded to one that there's going to be one solution. That in fact, lots of things need to be tried. Um, lots of approaches need to be tried and some of them will stick I mean to some degree that's the same advice that we've got from looking at at pandemics as well right it's um, don't don't assume it's just one there's just one um, one solution look for lots of solutions to um, the crisis and I think that that's um, um, that's one of the things that FDR was able to do that we'd really like to see here, right, is at, at, at a local state and at a federal level is that you, take, um, that you take advantage of the creativity of lots of people to try different ways of moving forward.
2: Yeah, I think crisis inspires innovation. Mm-hmm. Um, and there can be good that comes out of suffering and tragedy and, and trouble. Um, and I think that um, there's little examples of that, and then there's very large examples of that. And I am keenly interested in seeing what, is the, what are those innovations going to come out of this pandemic in terms of technology, in terms of communications, in terms of, of um, you know, what are we gonna be looking at in our communities that's gonna be different. And we're gonna look at differently through a different lens from now on. Um, and how, how does that look? How does that feel? Um, w- what type of things are, are, will uh, change forever, you know, potentially? Mm-hmm. I know one of the little things out of the depression that we at Naper Settlement are so grateful for is <laughs> one of the WPA projects was the drawings for the preemption house before right. it was torn down. Because those drawings were done during the depression, we were able to accurately rebuild the preemption house at for Settlement. And so that that's the type of thing that you may not consider um, and you have to have the long look for. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I think um, historians are, are sort of um, apt to do, <laughs> right. is, that, right. is that long look. <laughs> Not so much, to, I mean, it's great to be able to look into that crystal ball and see and try to guess. You know, the other thing that happened right after, um, the, right after the 1918 pandemic and World War One was the Roaring Twenties. Mm-hmm. And I've been asking myself, am I seeing signs of speakeasies in the news? And, mm-hmm. and you know, are, are these types of things? Is there going to be a breakout factor in the zeitgeist of, of, of our, of our, of America? You know, what is that going to look like? I have children in my, in their twenties and, and what is that going to be for this next, next decade? Are we going to go through another roaring twenties, which I hope not because there was a lot of problems with that.
0: <laughs> right. Well, but we're, you know, it's funny cause it's 2020 and it's, the you know, so lots of, right. you know, lots of thought about, you know the Roaring Twenties when January rolled around. So that is um, an interesting thing. I, you know, I, I think about with the economics of all of this is—the role of our global society now. That I think many of us think that in the 1930s that the global there that the global impact was not as much or it wasn't there, but it was there. We weren't the only country having a depression at that time.
1: Right. 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 And the response, you know, different responses to the depression um, yielded very different kinds of, um, of societies, right? So you've got Stalin in, um, in the Soviet Union, um, you've got uh, Hitler's rise in uh, Germany, you've got uh, Mussolini in Italy, um, there's a certain element of, of um, it th- that are based to some degree on fear. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so the question of how you respond, whether you do it um, in a um, a reassuring way that's going to be inclusive or whether you are looking to scapegoat groups (laughs) and identify people that are going to be to blame for something that's happened are challenges that I think we really face we face right now and we can see the analog analog analogies to the 1930s, um, you know, that led directly, you know, that yeah, I, but they're not analogous. They're, 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 are lessons to be learned there, but certainly it's a, it's not the same. Um, and again, the 1930s wasn't dealing with, it wasn't this rapid shift. So the other thing that I'm curious about is, and we just don't know is, will this be, what kind of a speed is this going to take on a recovery, and we don't know. We don't know what the the story is with the COVID virus, and how um, and what kind of a um, of a um, treatment or cure can be found for that. Um, so it's lots of open questions about that. But yeah, the 1930s offer us, I, I think, um, a cautionary tale mm-hmm. um, about thinking about. Um, about who to blame, and how to rebuild.
0: Right. Well, and I, you know, I think science has changed so remarkably. Yes. We, in over the last hundred years, you know, between, you know, we within weeks we knew what this virus was. They had a you know a DNA map of this virus. You know, in 1918, they didn't even know it was a virus. Um, you know, so and then you know they could immediately start figuring out you know how to how to you know, map it, and then thinking about a vaccine, which I, I think gives us great hope that um, this will be a quicker turnaround. There's been a lot of comparison to the 1958, 1959 flu. Of, right. That was, a you know, a very short-lived and then economics popped back up, but I don't think it was at the magnitude. Again, it's the rapid closing in the loss of jobs and that unemployment number being so high, that is the differentiating factor, I think. Yeah. It's it's something to think about. So we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to talk a little bit about the psychology and, and fear of all of this.
3: In Naperville, we know that community counts. In fact, it's in our name as Naperville Community Television We have the privilege of showcasing what makes this award-winning city a wonderful place to raise a family, to make a living, and to enjoy life's journey. That's why it's our mission to capture on camera those special moments that connect us. Those stories that impact our lives, stories you won't see anywhere else. So watch Naperville Community Television on air, online, and on social media.
0: And we're back. And we um, started talking about a little bit about fear when we were talking about the depression in our last um, segment. So let's talk a little bit more about how fear plays a big role in, in what we're facing now and what we've seen in the past. Who wants to jump in first?
1: Yeah, I, I find um, I go back to 1919 mm-hmm. um, when I'm thinking about this um, with the 1918 uh, influenza epidemic because I think pandemic, because I think there's some really interesting parallels. 1919 is after the war, right? So World War One is over, and um, it's a really tough year. Um, in a lot of ways. So in the United States, we could go worldwide, but if we're just looking at the United States, um, this is the year of the, the, the Mitchell Raids, right? The, red ska- the first round of the Red Scare. So this fear of people who might be communist or who are radical. And we deport, the country deports <laughs> thousands of people. Um, on the basis of their their radical politics so that would include someone like Emma Goldman who is here in Chicago that gets deported um, so there's the fear of radicalism there's labor disputes um, and really a clamping down on labor and of, of of um that starts in 1919 you see it in Chicago you see it in places like Seattle where there's terrible strikes in in 1919 and you also see then another layer of this is anti-immigrant. So there's a real push for immigrant restriction to take place in the country um, on the heels. And again, I've always thought about it as on the heels of World War One. So here's where his historian, is. Re- I'm rethinking 1919 because now it's, oh, this is on top of this epidemic. Um, and now I have to rethink how that factored in. And so I'm curious, so you've got this anti-immigrant, um, you're gonna get all this anti, uh, about immigration restrictions are gonna come just a couple of years later. They're being debated in Congress in 1919, 1920. And then the last piece of this in a place like Chicago is the race riot of 1919, right? So. Um, the, the racial strife between black and white uh, residents of cities like Chicago, and Chicago's got one of the, the worst race riots in July of 1919, which in fact is just weeks after the petering out of the of the of the flu, the influenza pandemic, because right, because that goes in three rounds, so it's not just over in October of, of 1918. Um, it's going to continue into 1919, so I think that's another piece of this. And so I've always, you know, and then and then it's also a downturn, an economic downturn, because it's the end of the war. But again, I'm rethinking it now, thinking about what what role does the the flu, uh, the flu epidemic, uh, pandemic play in all of this? And I think that that's um, there's a lot of fear. 1919 always struck me as one of those years in in American history that are we just we, we, we fell prey to our most basic fears of other people. And that somehow this was someone else was to blame for the misfortunes that any group was feeling. And I, I think that's, that's one of the things that I'm wrestling with right now is that that kind of fear we have to fight, right? There, there are ways to fight that, but that's, that's, that's one of the things that I see there.
2: And and I personally, and I'm, I'm looking at that and thinking to myself as you're speaking, what does our changing communications have to do with spreading fear? So there's sort of, in in 1918, 1919, there's sort of this tacit agreement among newspapers to kind of, you know, Just sort of lightly report what's going on especially in in communities like Naperville there's one newspaper article you know this is just the same old flu don't worry about it we're gonna get through it everything's gonna be fine here's a list of things you can do when we know you know kids are being sent home from school um, nurses are coming and visiting homes we know that it's more than just the same old flu that year but the communication around that is sort of structured where this there's sort of like there's this nod that newspapers are not going to over-report they're they're going to keep to what they want to say and today i think you've got so many more open communication channels there's crowdsourcing of communication there's for good and bad um and for misinformation and for accurate information both right i think i think we're going to look back on this um, and forward, uh, and and really look at the way communication spurs or helps alleviate fears in 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 society. So so I think that that's an interesting thing to consider as well. Are uh, the different forms of communication um, o- over the last one hundred years?
0: Right. Well, and how easy communication is to access right now. I mean, good or They're- bad right or wrong it's much easier to get information right now than it was in 1918 i mean there was you know you had to wait for information which was often outdated by the time you got it right which is i think so interesting now you know you know we're right here right now and we're having a zoom conversation about this we're not in the same space we're right. you know not of it but we're able to communicate right. about it easily um because of all the technology, which is fascinating to me. Thinking about
1: the, um, the radio, right? Mm-hmm. And just someone like, I know that um, the North Central College president at, at during this time period, Edward Rahl, who was um, just completely fascinated with radios. And um, as you're talking, I'm thinking, well, that's an interesting piece of this. Again, I'm rethinking mm-hmm. um, the history that I, I know from other perspectives, right? And that's one of the wonderful parts about doing history is that something changes, and then it's like, oh, this is not the same. This is this is a very different story than the one that that I thought. And now I'm thinking, well, one of the reasons why Rawl might have been so interested in the radio was the idea of being able to have that kind of immediate communication in a world in which it had to work with letters and with um, and where you were trying to Quarantine, right? During those years of the pandemic, that you would have an interest in having that more immediate communication, um, and and the popularity of radio that's just coming, right? And the explosion of people having telephones, right? So there really, it's a very interesting picture here that you start to see emerging of people wanting those kinds of connections outward. And I don't know whether it's is a part of that is is looking at something like this, um, this pandemic, the 1918-1919 pandemic, and saying I want to be more connected, um, even if I can't see someone face to face. And of course, I'm very different today.
0: <laughs> right, right. Where we probably see too much of didn't... one another. Right, right, right. Right. Well, and I think it, going to the radio, you know, in um, President Rawl, I mean, I think. He, you know, he's a, he was a huge communication, communicator back then, yes. everything. So for him to want to have information sooner from a wider world fits his personality so much of what it is. But as we think about communication and news, whether good news or bad news or wrong or right, um, the other thing that, that communication can with misinformation is, can uh, lead us to is, is blame blame and blaming groups as you said before we want somebody to blame and sometimes communication can get that blame game going much faster right um and i think about you know where this covid19 originated in china and now our 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 nation's reaction to that with with a rise in racism towards asian populations right. um Let's touch on that a little bit. I mean, that I think instantly, World War II and the Japanese concentration camps here. Yeah. Well,
2: I was going to say Naperville has a connection with um, people who were in those internment camps. There was a small group of people who came to work in Naperville during World War II um, on the mushroom farms and things like that. And so we 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 have evidence in Naperville's history of people coming here due to that. Fear and blame, and um, you know, uh, and in the horrible way Japanese Americans were treated during that time. Anne, your thoughts on this? Yeah. um, Another
1: thing that was that 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 um, and it it kind of segues uh, back to actually uh, um, thinking about newspapers, right? And the the limited newspaper coverage. that the pandemic got in 1918 um, is, you know, that the control that that had, right? Um, and the idea of 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 a limited number of people controlling the stories that we hear, um, and how much that changed, and whether that was a good or a bad thing. I don't know. Maybe that maybe it's a better thing that there's more, um, more, many more lines of uh, information coming at us. Um, we have to. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. Gonna go with the. It. C- it can lead us to be more tolerant of difference. I guess, um,
0: or not. I. I'm. I'm just not sure. Well, and I think with you make a good point with communication that now whether you can make a decision because there are many sources that support, you know, both views to be you know much more broad-minded and not try to place blame or to the other way. But I think now there's, more it's not just one group of people trying to just shove it down that or put out that information it's you've got multiple sources to go to so your views can be different which i don't think your views could be as different back then
1: i mean the other another interesting facet to this is that because of it's a pandemic and that has an effect locally and that you are very much Affected by what your neighbors do, <laughs> we're affected worldwide, but we're also affected very locally. So we think about our communication is actually so much more global, and our connections um, through communication can be with a a network of people as we're talking, but a network of people that we have we have no. Uh, physical connection to but we're also in a in a in a crisis right now where it really matters what our neighbors do so <laughs> you know I think that's the challenge to me is how do you also create um, community amongst a group of people or foster community that's already there foster community in places where you really need people to um, to work together in terms of, um, um, you know, sheltering at home or wearing your masks or, um, you know, behaving in public in ways that um, are going to be for the good of a community at large. It's There's a global level to this story, but because of uh, that this is a physical disease. It also remains so local, and also that our um, our healthcare response, right, has got to be so is so local, so that it's it's. Uh, to me, I think part of the challenge is that so much of the local story angle <laughs> has gotten lost in our in the quick changing media landscape um, so that you really need that local news. I don't, I, I'm good. Can I turn it on you, Liz? I mean, are you feeling, are you feeling that I, I'm, I, you know, cause the NCTV offers that kind of a connection.
0: I feel like, and then I want to toss it over to Jean for some thought. You know, I, I feel like our role, uh, NCTV 17's role has never been more apparent and important because yeah. we are wanting to report on Naperville news we get there's a lot of things happening in Chicago and they're in a different situation than we are and yeah. i think i think that is the key thing yeah. is that chicago's in a different different situation with right. covid than we are so we want our local news we want to know where is it in naperville how many cases right. we have it edward how many of our nursing homes are impacted and right. so um in this case again it goes down to how is this impacting my my city and my neighborhood, you know, how much of a threat is it here in my community? Right. You know, where it's a, you know, I think some people, and I think this may be um, a little bit of um, an error that we're thinking that we don't have nearly the threat here in Naperville as we do in others um, in Chicago. And we're forgetting how, how quickly we can cross contaminate ourselves. So right. I think there's some, some worry that way, but I think the, our role and local news has, has been proven, which is, you know, I, I've said this to my staff who's worked really hard, um, but we are truly living our mission right now, Great. right
2: now. Great, absolutely. Um, reporting on those, um, on, on those topics and that type of reporting is absolutely vital for local communities. Um, and what Neighbor Settlement is doing with our pandemic collecting initiative mm-hmm is equally vital because where you're where where you cannot actually report on every story all the journals that are being created the facebook posts and just all all of the the poems the videos the the birthday party posters you know Mm -hmm. the the signage the the business um archive material all of those things are going to help tell the story of this time period and you mentioned that there's there's some um, blame and there's some hate and there's some things like that that may not be seen in the local news at the time that it happens it may it may not always get reported but as people are writing in their journals about their way they're feeling about things as um, people in the Asian community are reflecting on some of the blame that they're getting you know as they're um, thinking about those things and they're reflecting on that, those journals are going to be a critical part of the story in the future for future historians. Yeah. And so that's actually one of the things that we're doing in the museum it's it's termed rapid response collecting where when something um, extraordinary, awful, you know something something wonderful happens in the community in the world, in the nation, um, museums turn around and say, um okay we need your we need your uh, journals we need the facebook posts we need your signs we need we need artifacts and material that'll help tell this story for a historian who wants to do an exhibit about this uh, 50 years 100 years from now you know what will what will really um be the sources that will help tell this story and so there's where i think local um local news outlets are so incredibly vital but Locals are vital to right. telling their own story and their right. own perspective. Just as you have the, the interesting um, parallel between what the Naperville Clarion is saying during the 1918 pandemic and what Merle Clark is saying in her journal, which is sort of contrary, you know, you've got, you've got some interesting things that could come out of this collecting initiative that, that we're doing at Naperville Settlement. So, um, I do want to encourage people to consider
0: donating. Right. I think, it, I think it's hard for us to think, um, that we're part of history. You know, we uh, like, we study history. We don't think we're going to be part of history. We're not living in history, but we are, this is a historic event and time period. And we're living through history. Um, and I think, um, I think, um, journals and collecting, you know, give us a chance, um, to celebrate, write down those silver linings. As you mentioned, there's innovation, but there are also silver linings that come out of all of these of, of this crisis. And many people might say spending more time with their family, even their their college age children. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I want to thank you both for joining me and 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 taking time to talk through this from a history perspective. I I find that history shines a light on so many things and gives us new ways of looking at both history and what we're going through right now. So I thank you for your knowledge and your time and wish you both well. Thank you. you. Thanks Liz.